You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The next morning, January 1st, 2005, my whole household woke up early to walk down to the Rose Parade, which winds its way through Pasadena every New Year's Day. In the still dark early morning, I was awake in time to find Jupiter bright in the sky before the sun came up. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. That was it. The end of the planets. Maybe. Unbeknownst to anyone, well, except for Diane, to whom I told everything, and my parents who were visiting, and all my students, and a few friends here and there, Two days after Christmas, I had discovered the brightest thing I had yet seen. I didn't know for sure how big it was, so it was not in time to win my bet. But something that bright might well be a planet. In honor of the season when it was discovered, I called it Santa. A few years earlier, my first reaction to the discovery of Santa would have been, I bet it's bigger than Pluto. I finally found the 10th planet. But now, though, I was a bit more skeptical. Quarwar and Sedna had both fooled me with their anomalously frosty surfaces, which made them appear much brighter than I expected. But even if Santa's surface was as anomalously frosty as Sedna's, it would still mean that Santa was the size of Pluto. But what if Santa were even frostier? What if Santa was covered in, say, pure ice, which would make it even shinier and brighter than Sedna? I wasn't going to get my hopes up too much. Mike Brown is the Richard and Barbara Rosenberg Professor of Planetary Astronomy at the California Institute of Technology. His new book is How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Oh, it's my pleasure. Mike, one of the things I love about this book is the way you give us an astronomer's life in full. And, you know, I was kind of shocked to when at the very beginning you told us that as an astronomer you prefer to stay up late rather than get up early. I, I'm it's it's a it's a good thing because uh, astronomers are up working all the time and and there are some people who who try to do astronomy but don't like staying up late and that makes it pretty tough on them. Now, um, let's talk uh, about the the way this book is laid out because you did a great job of creating the timeline and telling us this story going back and forth between the the discovery of planets, the discovery of your wife, the discovery of your child, all these great events in your life. As you wrote this book, how did you um, put these parts together in in the order? Talk about just sitting down to compose. It was I, I knew where I wanted to start. Um, I really wanted to start with the 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 this moment when I was sitting at the telescope um, down at Palomar Observatory when I first admitted to a friend of mine that I really thought I was going to find a tenth planet. And, and that, was, that was such the perfect place to start the overall story. But at that point, you have to go back and then talk about what a planet is and what people have thought planets were in the past, what I thought a planet was in, in my childhood. Uh, and so the story weaves from that moment forward, but also backwards. And so it was, it was, a, it was a fun time putting those, all those timelines together, including uh, meeting my wife, the birth of my daughter, which took place while all of this was, was happening, and, and she's so much to me a part of the story that there was no way to tell it without. Oh, I think that's one of the things that, that makes this book so unique and so powerful is that this gives us a view of science in full 
because we tend to think of science as happening almost like a computer program. You turn, you come in, you, you the scientist walk into the, your laboratory, you plug yourself in, and you click, click through eight hours of work or 12 hours of work, and then you come home, and there's not any connection. But this book gives us a great idea of how these different threads of life are woven together and contribute to one another. And it, it's actually a very different way from, uh, I think in, in eighth grade, in my eighth grade science class, I learned about the scientific method mm -hmm. and scientists formulate a hypothesis, do an experiment, look at the results and see what happens. And, and that's, sometimes that actually happens. Sometimes I have a hypothesis and I go out and do it. But in general, this is not the way I do science or most other scientists really do science. In, in the case that, that I describe in the book, what I really had, rather than a, a hypothesis, I think the best description is I had a hunch. I had a hunch there was something out there. I didn't have any particularly good scientific reasons that I could prove my hunch was right, but I really thought there was probably something out there, and I had a desire to go find it. That's what's so interesting. Now, you start this at, at, at Palomar when you were going to, when you just to explain to somebody that you had a hunch. And you did something else, too, didn't you? I did um, what, what scientists also never do, uh, but I think they should more. I, I made a bet. I, I, I told her that I, I thought somebody was going to find a 10th planet. And uh, I said that uh, we, we made a bet that somebody would find it by December 31st, 2004. Um, and uh, there was uh, uh, five bottles of champagne resting on it. Now, uh, after that, you take us back a little bit to the time when you first learned about the Kuiper Belt. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about this book is the way it gives us a, a, both a long distance and a very close-up view of this, the history of science. Because to me, the Kuiper Belt, I, I, I know about it, and it, I always thought that maybe they discovered it back in the 50s or something. So to, to hear that when, when it was first discovered that you were there is kind of shocking. It's, it's shocking to me, too, in that uh, it, uh, I first heard the term Kuiper Belt, I'm pretty sure, on this, this day in September of uh, 1992, um, right when the very first new object in the Kuiper Belt, Pluto was in the Kuiper Belt, too, but the very first new object in the Kuiper Belt was discovered, and it was by a friend of mine uh, who was in the office just a couple doors down, and she came and told me, and she said, I, I just found something in the Kuiper Belt, and my reaction was, the, the what? The Ki and I, I didn't know what it was. It wasn't part of my astronomical training, um, and so I, I had a lot of catching up to do. Well, talk about um, the the kind of uh, what happens because we're sitting in a in a series of offices, and, and how this kind of the society of scientists contributes to what you know and what you do and how you do it and, and even why you do it. You know, that's actually, it's, I, I have an a, a interesting perspective on that, I think, because uh, I'm, I'm an astronomer. My PhD is in astronomy, mm -hmm. um, and af and, but, I, but I study planets with telescopes. And so uh, after getting my PhD and, and going on to become a professor, I'm now at Caltech. I'm in a planetary science and geology department. So my immediate colleagues on, on all sides are are more likely to be geologists or environmental scientists um, than people who study the, the distant universe. And that has thoroughly changed my perspective on how I look at and, and look for things that are, that are planets or, or not planets and how I think about them. And so when I, when I come up with analogies for the, for the word planet and how we use the word planet, my analogies tend to be 
things on the earth, it tends to be the word continent or, or the word island, um, as opposed to the analogies that astronomers tend to come up with is, you know, differences between galaxies and stars and everything. So it's, I have, I have, I have totally been subsumed by geology to the, to the extent that I actually teach geology classes now, which is strange for me. Now, uh, one of the things, you talk about kind of your upbringing as a boy, and, and I'd like you, I think that's really an important part of a, of a male scientist's life, is, you know, this, the, the stories for boys, the toys, the, the, just that kind of vibe of looking at, collecting the things that have the planet. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your childhood and I, discovering the, your first discovery of the planets. It's so that my, my childhood was a, I was in a, a special place to be, to be a kid, particularly a kid with interest in, in space. I, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where they were building the Saturn V rockets to, to go to the moon at the time. And my, my father worked on the Apollo program and, and pretty much everybody's father worked on the Apollo program. Wow. Um, <laughs> or on some sort of mm-hmm. rocket program for the army or something. It was, it was you know, the, its nickname is Rocket City USA, and it's because it's true. And so, uh, and, and just as I was, you know, that, that best impressionable age, five, five years old, the, uh, the, the first man landed on the moon. And so it was the most space-oriented, exciting place that I could possibly imagine. And so I had every possible space toy you could imagine. Um, rockets and lunar landers and lunar modules and plastic astronauts and uh we would we would play astronaut all the time i think when the the rest of the world was playing cowboys and indians we would play astronauts and astronauts and aliens of course because the aliens would usually eat the astronauts um so it was it was a fantastic place to grow up with with those that sort of interest uh what what it didn't have which is which i people are still always shocked to hear is that very few people that i know from that era grew up to become uh, astronomers. It seems like a very natural thing. You, you have that. They, most, of them, most of my friends from, from uh, childhood um, are now actually engineers who work on those sorts of things. So it was a very engineering town, uh, much more interested in rockets than in the science of what's going on in the sky. So I, I had to discover the sky itself um, on my own and, and more or less accidentally. I was always a kid who looked up at the sky and liked the dark skies that, that northern Alabama had at the time, but I really remember this very distinct moment in high school um, where I had been watching the sky and there were these two really bright things close to each other and, and I had been watching them long enough to realize that over the course of a couple months they had been sort of doing this, this dance around each other. And now as someone who is an astronomer for a living, I think to myself, how could I possibly have not looked up and said, oh, Lyle, look, these planets, those are really bright planets up there. But I, it didn't even, I didn't even really stop to think about what I was watching. I just, for a couple of months, watched these things going across the sky. And then one day I picked up a newspaper, I think it was, and, and, and happened to see in it uh, a, a paragraph saying, you know, that's Jupiter and Saturn up in the sky, by the way. And it blew my mind. And that was, that was the moment. From that moment on, I made that connection that these things that I loved, these planets, I got magazines and books about planets, and these, these things that I loved were actually up in the sky too. And it's, it's this weird abstraction that we allow ourselves to do that, you know, Jupiter is this thing NASA sends spacecraft to. But no, actually, Jupiter is this really bright thing up in the sky right now. And, uh, you know, I, I get out my binoculars 
uh, most nights and go look at the moons of Jupiter because you can see them with your binoculars. And it's really right there right now. And that's that to me is some of the most exciting stuff about, about looking up at the sky. Well, you were uh, just reenacting what the, the Greeks did and identifying the wanderers. And, and that's one of the things I, I like is that in this book is you give us a great sense of the immediate history of science, the Kuiper Belt, the Pluto, and all and all the things that happen right in the present, essentially, of the book, but also a, a long history of science. And I think that that gives us some of that's kind of shocking, actually. Well, it's, if you're if you're going to think about the word planet, you really do have to take it back to the the original Greek meaning of the word planet, because there there were planets long before uh, any of us came along to debate what the word planets were. There are, of course, seven of them because the sun was a planet and the, the moon was a planet and then all the other ones you could see. And so the word planet has been been sort of moving around for, for thousands of years. The, even the days of the week are named after planets, which I didn't know that. Yeah, the seven, seven days of the week are those seven original planets. Some of them are obvious. Sunday, mm. Sunday. Mm. Uh, Monday is the moon. And I'm, I, I, I cannot always remember the rest of them. Um, because they're, they're weird combinations of Norse and Old English. But some mm-hmm. of them, uh, Saturday is mm-hmm. very obvious. Um, Thursday is, is Thor's day. Mm-hmm. Thor is, is Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, v- Friday is from, it, it works better in French, um, but Friday is from, uh, is Venus in, in uh, Old English, Frigga is her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's really quite amazing that this is, uh, there, there's still a debate about whether or not the reason there are seven days of the week is because there were seven things and you can, you can see in the sky. But it's certainly clear that the seven days of the week uh, are, are each associated with one of, these, one of these planets. Most of us have, are, were brought up on this nine-planet solar system. But it, and I always, again, thought that that was from time immemorial, uh, and it wasn't. And you talk about the, the history of, of our understanding of the solar system, and it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and the, the, the first ninth planet uh, was... <laughs> I like that. ...was, was discovered in, in, uh, in 1803, I think it was. Um, and so when, when the asteroids, the first asteroid, which would have been the, the um, Ceres, Ceres was the eighth planet because there were only seven other planets known before then. Ceres was the eighth planet. The next one was the ninth planet, Vesta. Um, the next asteroid, the next asteroid, they were all called planets in, until sometime in the, the 1850s, Be sometime between about 1850 and 1900, um, people generally decided that there were too many asteroids and they were too small compared to the planets and they shouldn't really be called planets anymore. Eventually, uh, we, we got to, to the point where we, you know, it was agreed that the solar system had only eight planets. That was in the early 1900s. And then in uh, 1930, Clyde Tombaugh discovered uh, Pluto with the, was that with the Schmidt telescope? No, he discovered it with a, a, a telescope um, at Lowell Observatory, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a fairly small um, specialized telescope that they had built just just for that purpose. The Schmidt telescope hadn't yet been invented. It had not yet been invented. Now y- you spend a lot of time at Palomar uh, Observatory, a- and it, it's an interesting observatory. So talk about your first search for for the tenth uh, planet. <laughs> my my first search. Um, I started in uh, in 1998, and which was you know, only six years after the first Kuiper Belt object had been discovered. But even mm-hmm. in those six years, it had become clear to me that there 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 just must be something else out there, and and I wanted to find it. But the only way to find something um, that's that's somewhere out in space, but you don't know where it is, 
you have to look at the whole sky. And the whole sky is an immensely big place for telescopes which are designed to look at tiny spots of the sky at once. So the, the trick that we used was to use this old telescope that had been designed to look at large parts of the sky, but had been designed to do it with photographic plates. Photographic plates, literally a, a piece of glass on which you paint photographic emulsion. You slap it on the back of the telescope. You, you uh, let it expose to the sky for half an hour. You then um, s send it down to the basement to be developed and have to look at it by that after the fact. It was an incredibly cumbersome task compared to modern astronomy, but it was the only way to cover that much sky. So I was pretty excited. I, I, I knew that uh, even though this was primitive, uh, it was still going to be the thing that was going to net me that 10th planet. I just, I just knew it was out there. I knew I was going to find it that way. These are big plates too. I mean, this isn't small. These are like there's ten, eight and a half by ten. They are they are um, sixteen inch square. Oh, really? Yeah. That, that that that's big. Of course, the funny part about the photographic plates is, I found absolutely nothing on the photographic <laughs> plates after all that work, and, and I would hate to give the impression that photographic plates were actually a useful thing. But they were useful in, in one sense, in that because, as I was saying, we think of a, of a astronomer looking at looking at the stars looking through the telescope maybe looking at the pictures you take but it, for you um, astronomy is uh, a big chunk of astronomy is computer programming it, it, it's it's a it's an amazing thing you would you would think that it's that having a good eye or being able to uh, spot something is is the most important skill and but but you're absolutely true you you com programming computers to understand data is a lot of what modern astronomy is about. So I, I spent, I spend a lot of my time sitting at my desk in front of my computer, um, figuring out different ways to have the computer look at the, the reams and reams of data. Because these days, and, and uh, in, in all the things that I've been looking at across the sky, there's no possible way a human could ever look at all these things and, and, um, and find something. So you really need the computer to be doing a lot of the work for you. Now, you were using a computer to analyze those plates, weren't you? Yeah, so for the photographic plates, uh, unlike Clyde Tombaugh, mm -hmm. to find Pluto who actually looked at them by eye, <laughs> um, I couldn't do that because I, I had done the calculation just for fun one time of how long it would take to look at them all by eye, and it was going to take uh, uh, 40 years of eight hours a day with, with no weekends. And um, I couldn't even convince a graduate <laughs> student to do that part. So, so I had instead do the, the computer programming. So we, we scanned them into the computer and had the computer analyze them. And um, it, it took me most of a year to get the data analysis down right. But uh, we had finally the computer went and looked through every single one of those spots in the sky we'd looked at. And you found? And we found um, nothing. Nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. Um, three years of doing searching across the sky with these big bulky photographic plates uh, excited every night that maybe that was going to be the night to find something and and we found nothing well talk about uh, that kind of work uh, when you when you did that um, how, how did you feel I mean what did what were your what was going through your mind it, it was difficult because it was I, I was so excited about this project and mm -hmm. and and I just knew that there was a tenth planet out there to be found. Um, and as we continued um, analyzing data and analyzing data and, and finding nothing in it that was really uh, looked like anything real, I was getting uh, more and more depressed. It, I just, it, it was hard for me to accept that this was really going to be it, that there really was nothing out there for me to find. 
Um, so it was, it was, I, it was that, that summer of that, uh, of that year when we were finally doing the analysis and looking that summer and I would go up to the telescope to try to confirm maybe really we'd found something and I would always confirm that we really hadn't found something. I was, I was definitely getting uh, a little bit low, I would say. Well, now at the same time, however, you, you do have, you had a personal life. Um, conveniently, <laughs> because <laughs> at that exact moment, and it was actually one of the moments when I was up at the telescope to, um, to, to look for these, to, to confirm some of the objects we'd found. At that same moment, I was, because I was at the telescope, I was asked to give a talk to a, to a, a group of, of, uh, from Caltech who were coming up to visit the telescope. And I thought, oh, sure, why not? I'm, I'm there at the telescope. I might as well give a talk. And uh, I remember this moment very vividly, standing there underneath the, the floor of the telescope, waiting for the group to come in. And, and finally, the the, the director of the group opens the door and walks in and introduces herself. Her name is Diane uh, Binney, and she says, Hi, my name's Diane, and I saw her, and I think I said, <laughs> and, um, and that turns out, after much uh, uh, back and forth, to be um, now my wife. Uh, and and a- as a scientist, you're an observant man, you're smart, you know what's going on around you, you're able to analyze and break down uh, the world around you. Maybe not so much. <laughs> it took you a little while to, 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 was, to reach the, the no, planet that I, you'd order. <laughs> I, 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 I think, yeah, okay, maybe that's true. But the way I like to look at it, um, I, I was, maybe I was too smart. Um, mm-hmm. So, so uh, Diane, at the time, worked on the Caltech campus, and she's she is a uh, a very attractive woman working on the Caltech campus, which is known mostly for a lot of geeky people who don't ever even look up to notice that uh, there are attractive men or women walking around the campus. But I sort of expected that because she was this very attractive woman walking around the Caltech campus, probably she got followed around a lot by people who found her a very attractive woman walking around the Caltech campus. So I thought, I'm so smart. I know what I'm going to do. I'm really not going to talk to her that much or, or pester her because even though she was very nice to me that night, I just I knew she she was happy that I was giving a talk to her group and she wanted me to give uh, talks in the future. And so I was I agreed and then didn't pester her after that because I was not going to you know make a fool out of myself like all these other people making a fool out of themselves. But eventually, you decided you your powers of detection. When I'm when I'm hit over the head enough times, I can eventually figure this out. So yeah, so we went we I, we went on a trip with her group to mm-hmm. Hawaii, mm-hmm. and uh, I did a very good job of giving the talks there and talking to all the people in her group and uh, being very nice to her and and uh, not making a fool of myself because that was my my prime directive there: do not make a fool of yourself. Um, immensely enjoyed myself and then we came back to the Caltech campus and I accidentally found myself wandering by her office a few times a day which is starting to make a fool of yourself um, and then we would talk and I'd be like oh nope sorry bye I have to go don't want to make a fool of myself and then at one point we actually went out for coffee and sat down and had coffee for about three hours and I thought to myself you know she 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 did not need to have coffee with me for three hours and I wasn't keeping her there she actually wanted to have coffee with me. So that was the impeccable logic that led me <laughs> to finally realize that, that maybe maybe all this time I actually had been being a little bit stupid. Now, a, at the same time, you're, you're 
teaching at Caltech, and, and you're you're about to engage embark on your second search. Tell us about the second search. Yeah, the second search I was very excited about. After that first search where we found absolutely nothing, um, any any rational person at that point would have probably given up. Um, but I, I had been bit by this mm-hmm. finding a planet bug. And I knew that there were limitations to the first search that we had done. And I wanted to fix those limitations and j- do the job right. Um, it, it was enough years later, it was four years later, that technology had improved just enough mm-hmm. that we could toss out all those photographic plates, which is good because Kodak never made them after that. After I ordered that last batch of photographic plates, they said, oh, we didn't even realize those were on, on our catalog anymore, and they wiped them off the catalog. Really? So there are no more photographic plates <laughs> you saw, can get. I saw one of the last to the Kodograph. You did. You did. Um, but the, the but digital cameras, those same digital cameras that, that we all now have, mm-hmm. digital cameras were really starting to make their inroads uh, into astronomy. Now, the, the first digital cameras in astronomy were, were tiny, just like the first digital cameras that, that we all had were these 400 by 500 format or some really crazy small thing. Astronomers mm-hmm. had equally crazily small things that would cover just a tiny sliver of the sky. But even in, in, um, in 2001, we could, we could make them a little bit bigger, and uh, we, could, we could put a bunch of them together into one big super-duper camera, and it could cover mm. not quite the same area of the sky that you could with the photographic plate, um, which is a pretty big chunk of sky, but, but about the same amount of sky that you get if you, if you make a circle out of your, your thumb and forefinger and hold it out at arm's length. You could cover about that much sky at once, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like a lot, but... Now we no longer had to develop the photographic plates. We no longer had to, to load up the plates into the telescope. We were just taking these digital pictures that went straight into our computer. And so we knew that with that amount of sky at once, we would eventually be able to cover the whole sky to, to a, a, a level that no one had ever looked at before. And I just knew at this point there must be a tenth planet out there. It was your, your hunch had never left. It just had to be true. It just had to be true. Now, um, as, as you started uh, going through through your data, you, you uh, had to make yourself re- relearn and re-up your your programming skills because you'd work with somebody else. This was the, uh, in the in the sort of the third version mm-hmm. of the survey. So this this version of the survey. Um, when, when we first got this new camera in here, I, I hired a, a recently minted PhD to come in and, and run the day-to-day version of it mm-hmm. um, while I was doing things like going off and getting married and going on month-long honeymoon in South America <laughs> and all these, you know, these, those other sorts of things. But he was really good, uh, Chad Trujillo. Mm-hmm. He, he got it all working and started um, finding things, more and more things, and, and it was running incredibly smoothly, and, and uh, we, were, we were sure there was going to be something fantastic now, out there. Now tell us, what did you find? You that, did find some things, in didn't that, you? In that survey, in that, in that second survey, mm-hmm. uh, as I like to think of it, that second survey found our first truly spectacular object in the Kuiper Belt. This is one that goes by the name of uh, Quarwar. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's uh, at the time, like every other time we found something, we always thought it was going to be bigger than Pluto, and it turned out to be not bigger than Pluto. But this one, we were, we were pretty convinced this was our first bigger than Pluto thing. Um, so we, we, we discovered it, spent uh, an intensive couple of months studying it in all the detail we could before uh, announcing it to the public. It turned out to be about half the size of Pluto, not, not the size of Pluto. But, but it's still, uh, it was the first big discovery of the survey, and it really pointed the way. It kind of, if, if you were reading between the lines, it was the discovery that said Pluto's time is, is coming soon. 
Well, one of the things that yeah, you learned with this was was the the problems with methane. Quarwar uh, was was one of the interesting objects um, scientifically that that started us really understanding how atmospheres and frosts on these things in the outer solar system really work. We've we've known for a long time that that Pluto has methane on its surface mm-hmm. and therefore methane in its atmosphere. Um, nothing else had ever been found that ha- that was the same way in the outer part of the solar system until when we first found Quarwar um, and we looked at the surface and looked at the composition of the surface, it had just small hints of methane on it. And we, we just scratched our heads. How could this thing that was so much smaller, colder, um, and but have, have a little bit, but not very much? And that one, the, that part of the story, it took, it took years to figure out that part of the story. It took, uh, that discovery was in 2002. And that one is one of the things that, that it sat in, and sort of uh, simmered in our brains for for half of a decade until the right person came along, a graduate student of mine who was, this is, I, I actually really like this story because it's, a, it's just another of the ways that science works in crazy ways. This graduate student of mine was primarily working on Titan, Saturn's moon Titan, and looking at the weather on Titan. The weather on Titan is is an interesting weather because it's it has Titan has lakes and it has rain and it has clouds, but they're all made out of methane. Mm. And so she was intimately familiar with and thinking hard about methane in atmospheres and how it worked. And also she was she was in my research group where we were discovering all these things and talking about methane. And one day she said, you know, I I think I sort of understand how this works, how the methane on uh, on Quarwar and one of the other objects we found, Maki Maki. I think I understand how these work. And it's it's different from how it works on Titan, but I can I think I could write down some equations and, and predict what's going on. And I said, great, go do it. So she went off and wrote this this beautiful, simple paper that explains for the first time uh, the things that we're seeing in the Kuiper Belt and what they're made out of and made sense out of it. And it all came out of this combination of, of it's, it's sort of the, the, the social aspect of science. She would never have done that except that she and the rest of my group who are working on these things sit around and drink a lot of coffee and we talk about what we're working on and she, she figured out how to make those connections. Now, we've talked about the social aspects of science. There's also the sort of, I guess, what you might call the antisocial aspects of science. And this is with regards to, uh, in the first place, once you discovered Quarwar, you had, the first thing that sets in almost is fear. Well, it's, it's um, you know, science is a, is a very competitive business. And you're right. I do I remember that very first moment of, of discovery of Quarwar. Um, the first thought was excitement, and the second thought was, oh, we got to make sure we get this out before somebody else discovers it, too. Because in science, uh, rightly in science, whoever makes the announcement of something first is officially the discoverer. If I discovered Quarwar and sat on it for five years and didn't tell anybody, and then somebody else discovered it and announced it, then they would be the discoverer. And that's, that's good, because that puts pressure on me to be fast. But the other pressure on me is to be complete. I didn't want to just discover Quarwar uh, one day in June and announce it to the world the next day. I wanted to be able to write scientific papers, analyze it, understand something before doing it. So, so we 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 worked very very hard that summer. Um, we we went from discovering it in June to our first paper describing it was in October. And and for a new discovery in science. That is extraordinarily fast, and the only reason we were that extraordinarily fast is because we worked really hard uh, that whole summer. It was tough, but that whole time, you know, I would I would 
sort of nervously check the newspapers every morning to see if somebody had discovered this thing out from under us. So we were, we were nervous. We were nervous the whole time. And the other aspect of science that's not so happily social are some internet chat groups that have to do with the comment on and feel they have some bearing on the naming of these objects. There, it's, it's an interesting thing about the solar system because, because it's such a cultural thing in addition to being a scientific thing. There are people who care deeply about things in the solar system like what precisely you name these objects and and whether or not you you follow the exact correct procedure as to whether you do it or not um and uh i i i always tried very hard to to come up with the best appropriate names for this quarwar for example is the uh um we wanted to name quarwar as something after a a uh, local mythology rather than Greek or Roman mythology. So, so Quarwar is the is the creation force of the the local Native American tribe, the Tongva Indians, the Gabrielino Indians in the Los Angeles basin, which is nobody would argue an inappropriate name except for the fact that it's a little bit of an unpronounceable name. But other than that, it's a it's a perfectly good and appropriate name. But what we really wanted to do was have that name associated with it at the moment of the announcement. Um, so we sort of pulled some strings with the International Astronomical Union and told them what we were doing, made sure that was okay with them to, to announce it that way before the formal process of naming it happened. And they thought, great, because it's a good name, we'll keep it, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll like that. But there were a lot of people on this, this amateur astronomer chat group who thought that this was just proof that, uh, that I was evil, that I was, I was breaking the rules, I was bending the rules to my own evil purposes, and, and they always had to go through uh, the official process to name their incredibly insignificant asteroid um, that they wanted to name after a cat or something. Um, I don't say that in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a mean way. There are a lot of things that get named that are, that are not particularly significant objects in the solar system, and so it's good to have some rules about how to do it. But for these very big, very significant chunks, uh, we, we didn't want to go through the years-long process of, of approving that name, and I think we did something very appropriate. These chat groups, are, are they mailing lists? Is it a chat room? What, what, how, how does it, I'm just curious about the technology. The technology, um, these days, I don't know how it started out because it started before these happened. These days it is literally a Yahoo chat group. Okay. Once you had discovered uh, Quarwar, um, you, had some, you, you were encouraged, to say the least. So talk about um, what, what happened next. Yeah, so Quarwar, it was, it was, it was obvious to me that once... Once we had found Quarwar, we had, mm -hmm. we had only started this second survey. It had only been running for about six months, and, uh, and, and we found Quarwar. So it was very clear. There, there were going to be big things out there, and this was going to be very, excited and very exciting. Um, and we spent uh, another year on that second version of the survey, and we found, we found a lot of things. We found, uh, gosh, probably, probably 35, 40 new objects out in the Kuiper Belt. None of them as big as Quarwar. Quarwar mm -hmm. was the biggest thing that we'd found in that, that second survey. Um, but we weren't discouraged because we knew that there was a third survey coming along. Um, and this third survey, we were, we were getting rid of the, the initial camera that we had put together and putting an even bigger, even better camera in there. And uh, we just knew this was the one that was going to get so much of the sky that, uh, that we were definitely going to finally find this 10th planet. 
and at the same time, the technology of your personal life was improving as well. So to speak. Technology <laughs> of my personal life. I mean, I'm not sure what that even means. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, in, in that you were about to get married, and oh, the, yeah. So that's uh, this. It's funny it's when I when I think about this whole time period where that I, 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 the discovery of Quarwar um, coincided basically with when I proposed to my wife. Um, and, and we were married within that next year. And, and even as I was just saying this to you, you know, oh, we spent a whole, uh, a whole other year surveying and we found other things. My memory of what we found in that other year is very dim. Mm -hmm. um, and I was sitting here thinking, why don't I remember any of these things? And the answer is, of course, uh, on the obvious side, is that entire year of that next part of the survey did coincide with, uh, with, a, with a wedding and a honeymoon and, um, and, and a lot of just actually trying to be a normal person who goes home at night instead of uh, spending all my time sitting in front of the computer analyzing data. So, and, and I think this is what's so interesting about the, the way the book is woven in, in the story you tell, because we get to see that science is a, is a very human thing, and it, it ebbs and flows not just with the technology that you have to, to hand, but also with what's going on in your life. And I think that that's a, a really valuable understanding of science. And it's, it, it, and it's certainly true in my story, um, as I know, but it, I, it must be true for everybody else. Everybody else has a, a life besides the science they're doing, and it, it certainly affects when things happen and what happens and, and why throughout science. Now, your third survey, though, you did have to kind of pull yourself back to science, and, and that, was, that wasn't easy for you, was it? The, the third survey was started out roughly. The, the third survey coincided right with that same moment when, when Chad Trujillo, who had been the, the new PhD who had come to work with me, he had gotten a new job back in Hawaii where he really wanted to be. Um, just as this new survey with a new camera, very complicated and, and uh, sort of bulky camera, um, was getting started and we started doing the survey with this third this third survey and we found just nothing and we found nothing because it was the everything would just crash all the time and the the, the software Chad had done a very good job of trying to pre-write some software before he left but there's no chance you could ever pre-write software for a new camera that no one's ever used um i like that idea pre-write pre it yeah <laughs> for brand new yeah and 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 hope it works so we i think i had been the most delusional i had kind of crossed my fingers and hoped that it was going to work and and it just wasn't working and uh i looked at it and realized the only way to make it work was going to be to to trash everything we had done and start from scratch and I couldn't do it there was no way I, I could find someone to to, to do this all in, in the right amount of time and the only logical solution I finally came to was to finally just give up we had done a lot of the sky and and I had always said I was going to find something bigger than Pluto but but we had covered a pretty big chunk of the sky and we'd covered most of the spots in the sky where we thought things should be hiding so I, I, I went with one of my, my students at the time um, to go get a cup of coffee and, and explain this to him just to, you know, bounce the idea off, us, off of him. And I said, look, I'm, I'm done. I can't. I, I, it's going to take hiring someone brand new, and they'll take a year to even get started, and there's no way we can do this. I'm just going to have to stop, and it's okay. We did good. We, we, it's, it's time to move on. And he just looked at me and said, are you, are you, are you crazy? I said, well, no, I, I just, there's no other choice. And he said, are you, you, you are going to be so 
mad if somebody else finds this 10th planet that you've been looking for all along and it's because you just gave up. And I said, yeah, but I, 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 I can't do it. And um, he said, you have to find a way to do it. And I went back to the office and, and, and beat my head against the, uh, the desk for a while until I realized that, that I could do it. The only way to do it was to do it and to do it myself. Um, which is something I'm good at. I do those things well, that, that computer programming aspect of it, but I hadn't really been doing that day-to-day stuff for a couple of years. I had, I had let, uh, I, had, I had sort of become scientific manager instead of uh, scientific worker bee. Um, but I did it. I, I dove in and went back to my old uh, bachelor days and ways of spending countless evenings sitting here hunched in front of the computer getting things done. Um, and it didn't take nearly as long as I had worried. It only took about two months of, of just super intensive work to get that third survey up and running. And, I, and, it, uh, and I'm glad we did because the third survey is the one that really finally found all the very exciting things out there. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>